This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. And when they wiped out that many fish, it was difficult. And I have to I have to preface that because fish and game, when they electroshock, when anybody electroshocks, they go to where the populations are. They don't go out to these long runs that are virtual deserts. Mm -hmm. They electroshock where we fish. Where you and I want to cast that dry fly into that two, three feet of water, mm -hmm. into that riffle, into the holding water down below it, that real good holding water. They hammer that. They hammer the water where we fish, where we can access, because the electroshocking only goes a certain depth. You can only turn up so much electricity before you start causing harm, breaking fish's backs, intermuscular hemorrhaging, all that kind of stuff, depending on how much electricity is used. So they go to where we catch because they want to be successful. Right. <laughs> and so we noticed a dramatic lack of fish um, at that year. This is Ed Emery, and this is the Tom Rowland Podcast. What's going on, everybody? We've got a great podcast today. As many of you know, I started my guide career in Jackson, Wyoming. And one of the rivers that I fished more than any other river was called the South Fork of the Snake River. The South Fork of the Snake River has a real, real warm spot in my heart for that river. It's where I learned how to do just about everything with fishing the hard way, mostly row a boat, um, catch fish. I don't know, everything. Made a lot of mistakes on that river. I uh, had a lot of victories on that river. It was, it was great. Um, but today, we're going to learn about what's going on on that river. And we have a guest. His name is Ed Emery. Ed has won the Jackson Hole One Fly five times. 
And uh, that's a pretty big accomplishment. No one else has done that. He tells me that somebody's won it four times, but nobody's won it five. So Ed knows what he's doing. He, he knows a lot about the river. He spends 140 days or more on that river every single year. And he's going to tell us about what is happening there now, which is an interesting conversation on native species and you know when when do you step in when do you not step in what's the opinion or what why why would you want to eradicate one species in favor of another that's a question and a conversation that's going on we're going to talk about it more with ed emery right now ed how are you man good tom good to see you yes sir you're on the banks of the pyramid lake right now Getting ready for the evening bite. Right on. So tell me about Pyramid Lake. It's an amazing fishery. Uh, Truckee River comes in, doesn't come out. It's a little bit of a saline fishery with these huge prehistoric Lahontan cutthroat trout. Yeah, that's what I... The benchmark's not a 20-inch fish. It's a 20-pound fish. That's what I've always heard there. Now, that cutthroat, the Lahontan cutthroat, that's that's a different strain of fish that gets larger uh, naturally, or is it something about that lake? Well, they have a Pyramid Lake strain, and then they have one that they found recently that is the ancient strain that grows to mammoth proportions. I call them megalodons. Wow. (laughs) So how do you fish that lake? I've heard it's all interesting. kinds of, of, of stories about it, but I want to know how you're going to do it. Well, you hear the stories about the guys standing on ladders. Mm-hmm. It's on a sandy beach, ladders out there so they can cast further. The waves don't affect them nearly as much. You got a stripping basket. I'm not a ladder guy. I got to be moving a little bit, see moving water and current. I like to fish around the rocks, especially that's where a lot of the midges come from. Hmm. Interesting. And so the goal, uh, like the first time I ever went to a spring creek, we were trying to catch a 20-inch fish on a 20 on a size 20, <laughs> 20 thing, you know. So uh what's the goal out there? What would be a what would be a real benchmark day? Well, there's uh, about three benchmarks. First one's 10 pounds, next one's 15, and the ultimate is to get over 20. Wow. That's a big trout. I mean, in anywhere, you know? And then you're just so you're not a ladder guy. So what do you do? How do you do it? We, there's some rocky areas and I love fishing around the rocks because when the wind kicks up, it creates its own current as opposed to being on the beach, which has a current, don't get me wrong, but there's more structure to play with and areas to cast to. And, and I believe those fish move in and out. They just check that out. Hmm. So does that structure present problems if you get one of these big ones? It can, (laughs) but you're, you're, you're pretty forceful. I mean, on a, on a streamer, chuck and duck, you're using 20 pound tests. Okay. You're using nothing less than 2X. Now, that would be a stretch using 2X. You're using 1 and 0X for the nymphing game. Nice. Okay. All right. Well, how many days are you going to spend there? Uh, we're going to do four. Okay. Is this on the early end of your trip or the or the tail end? Just arrived. So okay. I'm just, I'm Jones and looking at the water right now. <laughs> all right. Well, well, we won't keep you too long, but I know I wanted to talk to you about all kinds of things. And uh, it's really good to, good to connect back with you. I know that we fish next to one another probably a ton of times. Um, I started guiding on the South Fork of the Snake River um, in 1990. And I worked for Joe Bressler. So we were the lone Wyoming outfitter coming over there. And I think that you were working for Spence at the South Fork Lodge about the same time, right? We started exactly the same time. I started on the green in 1990. 
realized the green gets very crowded in the summertime. I wanted to branch out. So I immediately picked up on the South Fork of the Snake, which was fantastic from the 4th of July through till Labor Day. And then I went back to the green. It was oh, a yeah. great way to break up the two uh, guiding possibilities. One's real technical. The one, the other one's chuck and duck and big water. Mm-hmm. And, and man, I remember that summer when the Chernobyl ant came from the green, all the clients <laughs> brought the Chernobyl ant up there. They're like, you gotta, you won't believe what this thing will do. I look at that thing. I was like this really? Okay. We'll try it. And it did work. It worked really, pretty, pretty yeah, good. <laughs> that's that's, I brought the Chernobyl ant from the green. Yeah, I'm sure you did. That's exactly how it got there. Now that did, I think about that, that's, that makes all the sense in the world. Have you heard the story about the creation of the Chernobyl ant? No. Why don't you tell us? Okay. It was Emmett Heath, Alan Woolley, and one other guide uh, on the green. They were having a, an evening tequila and hot dog fest. <laughs> and they decided to tie up a size two ant. They tied a size two, what they called now a Chernobyl ant. And they brought it out to the river the next day. Of course, probably hung over with, with lemon and lime hanging off their, their beards. And <laughs> <laughs> they just, they threw it out there. And then every fish in the river seemed to come for that, that size two. If you can imagine a size two, that's a massive bug. And for whatever reason, fish went gaga for it, but you couldn't hook a fish. So it morphed down from the size two down to the sizes that we fish today with success. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and that flies undergone some, some evolutions and changes. I know my boys are both out in, in Bozeman, Montana, and they open their back, uh, open their box and it's like full of chubbies and all kinds of these other things that basically if you, if, I mean, it seems like it's kind of a, 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 a logical evolution of that, of that fly. It, yeah. It's, it, it becomes more user friendly. Yeah. So and, that's and that, more you know, effective hooking them, I guess. More effective, more user friendly, smaller legs, you know, fish get used to things. Have you ever noticed, Tom, that fish go through about a 10 year pattern on flies and they just don't seem to touch something? Yeah. Yeah. And these, these fish have a capability to learn. I mean, they, we're throwing Chernobyl ants at fish that are six inches long and we hope to catch them at 16 inches. So they've got two years of looking at our stuff before they get big enough to right. really, really take it and play with it. Well, so they happens. get used to those flies. Yeah. The same thing happens in saltwater too. Like the toad, when the toad came out, it was the craziest tarpon fly. They would do backflips for the thing. And now, uh-huh. I mean, you can catch them on it now. It's a good, it's still a good fly, but it, I don't know what it was about those first, you know, year or two of using something like that. That's, I mean, if you can get on that magic time like that, it's pretty sweet. Um, but then, you know, you can go back to things that they haven't seen in a long time. You ever, you ever mess with that? Like go back to something uh, like an old school fly. And sometimes they, they just jump all over it. I go back to the chamois caddis and I go back to the prince nymph. They kind of cycle back through again. Mm-hmm. They have their window, but it's not as great. So I got a theory on why these fish do this. A lot of fish are like infants. They've got to put something in their mouth to find out if it's a food source. Mm-hmm. Something new and different just ignites that, that infantile stage where they're going, hey, it's a new food source. I've got to try it. <laughs> Let's see what's going on. <laughs> yeah, well, that's probably not such a bad, uh, I've heard crazier theories. Um, <laughs> <laughs> fishermen uh, are always looking for, for, for that edge. I don't know. I, I, I see all these colors and everything, and then you just wonder. Like, does it even matter? Is that really to catch the fishermen? It probably is to catch the fishermen. It works really good too. I mean, cause you get a new bait with a new, new fly, new bait, new colors, whatever. And they sell like crazy. They really sell. Exactly. <laughs> but I don't know if the fish are going to eat them any better. 
Uh, they might. <laughs> they might. You know, sometimes they do. Well, there's a three P's in fly fishing. Presentation, presentation, presentation. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And all kinds of fly fishing. That's that's absolutely true. Um, one of the things that I wanted to to get to today is what's going on on the South Fork. And before we get to to the, the, the situation on the South Fork right now, I'd like to first set it up to, so like we have listeners from all over the world. We have people who are listening to this show literally in almost every country. So let's, let's paint a picture of where the South Fork is and just, just why it's such a good river. Well, first of all, the South Fork is, in my opinion, is probably one of the most diverse wild natural reproducing fisheries in the country, if not the world, where you can go catch acrobatic rainbows, streamer country crunching browns, and dry fly sipping cutthroat, all in the same body of water. You just never know what's going to tug, and the tug is a drug. Is it a big tug? Is it a running rainbow? Is it a, just a down and dirty brown? Or is it one of those cutthroats just going to sip your uh, size 16 olive caddis till the, the, the crows come home? Mm-hmm. So that now when when we were first starting um, fishing out there in 1990, I don't know about your experience, but I would assume that it's probably similar. We'd catch some browns. You'd catch a cutthroat rainbow hybrid occasionally, but it was mostly cutthroat. So in your opinion, I mean, is that your experience too in those early years there? Exactly. Uh, The river is uh, suffering from a a hatchery, what I'm going to call a hatchery hangover, quite frankly. Between 1969 and 1981, Idaho Fish and Game stocked 3.5 million cutthroat into the South Fork. And so all those hatchery fish have a whole different life history, a whole different way they feed. A lot of them originally came from Lake Hatchery out of Yellowstone Lake. Mm-hmm. This is just a, a massive propagation of uh, Yellowstone Lake form cutthroat. Um, so a lot of those came into the South Fork system, then they propagated the hatchery fish out of the system. So you stock 3.5 million hatchery fish into the river, they act like hatchery fish. I mean, they eat cigarette butts, they do things <laughs> like that, they, they do the crazy thing. So that's why. Back when you and I started, that size, that reference to a size 18 olive caddis, in my mind, and in my opinion, that represents a great piece of trout chow. Mm-hmm. And that was the only fly that you needed for, for a couple of years, it seemed like. Yeah. Those hatchery fish loved to chomp on that. Mm-hmm. And they were, man, they would just, I mean, you didn't even need any nymphs at all. I had a bag full of dry flies. It was a hundred percent dry fly. It was a great, great thing for the customers because, you know, that was, that was what everybody wanted to do. And they would go to all these other rivers and then they would go there and we would fish dry flies a hundred percent of the time and just catch fish all day. I mean, it was incredible. Those riffles were just full full of fish and um, and the numbers were were really great. So I fished there for seven, seven years and then you continued to fish there. So let's talk about like how the river has changed over time to get to where it is today. In terms of, in terms of the fish, like, like when we first started, it was, it was mostly cutthroat, mostly dry fly fishing. Now, if you go there today, it's a much different 
um, river as far as like what you're catching, like what you described. It's a very, very diverse. There's brown trout, there's rainbows, there's cutthroat rainbow hybrids, there's cutthroat. And so over these years, uh, between 1990 and now, how, how have we gotten from almost a completely cutthroat stream to what it is today? Well, let me back up a little bit on the completely cutthroat idea. We didn't throw nymphs, and it's really interesting. I talk to people who fish just dry flies. They don't see a rainbow almost all season long. Mm-hmm. I throw a lot of droppers. They call me beadhead ed. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of stuck. So I catch a lot more rainbows and, uh, and hybrids. They're almost all hybrids, by the way. It's mm-hmm. out, of, out of the whole rainbow population, I, in an informal uh, poll with the guides, about 90% of the rainbow population has been hybridized. That's just an informal observational poll. So when you're using droppers, you access those fish more so than you do using a dry fly because there's a stronger propensity mm-hmm. for those fish to say subsurface feeders mm-hmm. than does the cutthroat. So the people I talk to that fish exclusively dry flies, I caught one or two, three or four rainbows a year, and that's it. So I don't know if it was the mix of the fact that we were all dry fly fishing right. and we weren't droppering or the numbers reflect, they're going to reflect a lower population of rainbows earlier on because that's the hatchery program. I mean, that you're, you're the hatchery hangover. You've got 3.5 million fish stocked into 42 miles of river. Mm-hmm. So you're going to have that hangover for years after they stopped that program in, uh, in 1989. And so, and and then in your opinion, there's always 19, been... 1981, excuse me. Um, in your opinion, has there always been the, the, the population of browns or has that increased or decreased? Well, back in uh, the late 80s, Idaho Fishing Game uh, perceived the browns as a threat to the, uh, the fishery and the, the rainbow, the cutthroat population. So they opened up the raceway um, below Palisades. They were just tons and tons of massive brown trout. They actually had done studies and those brown trout would migrate from basically down at Byington, mm-hmm. down from Lorenzo and go almost all the way up to the dam to spawn. I mean, it was a huge spawning area. Wow. So back in the late 80s, fish and game perceived the brown trout as meat eaters and that's all they eat. And so they opened up that raceway to try to get rid of those fish. Hmm. And it was probably very effective that way, I would imagine. It was so effective. People showed up on a Wednesday and started fishing and fishing game didn't stop them. Wow. Because opening day was Memorial Day weekend, historically. So there were people fishing Wednesday night, Thursday night, just throwing fish in the trunks of their cars, the back of their pickup trucks, driving off and coming back and getting more. Wow. Um, And fishing game really, this is, this is just, this is lore. But of course, you know, eight and 10 pound fish were bringing people in like crazy and fishing game really did nothing because they wanted the brown trout reduced in that river. Hmm. I remember going into the South Fork Lodge, I think it was, and there was a, a picture of the Idaho state record there that came out of the South Fork. I think it was 26 <laughs> pounds back then. I mean, it was a right. really big fish. I always dreamed the, of places, you know, I'd see this deep hole. I'd think, oh, it probably came out of there, but it probably didn't probably came out right under the dam and it in that in that melee right there. Right. Exactly. I mean, the most of the mounts that you see in the bars and restaurants around Swan Valley came from that period of time. Mm. And so the, the South Fork, when, when I started fishing there, there were six outfitters that could put four boats per section on the river and they had the river sectioned off into different, you know, there may be different miles. It was about, you know, a nice day trip. Um, is it still like that? There, there are eight total outfitters now. 
uh, Worldcast owns two permits. Uh, and so they have, they have two of the eight. So that leaves basically the rest of us. Okay. Um, it is broken up into four different sections and there's four boats a section for a total of 12 boats um, overall for each outfitter. So you have the dam to Conant, Conant Valley down to Cottonwood, Cottonwood down to Byington, and then Byington all the way down to Lorenzo and Manat. Okay. And so none of that's changed from, from when I fished there. Um, and then the public, is there any um, restriction on, on private boats going in there? No restriction. Uh, they're looking at putting restrictions on camping. There's a two-week period right after the 4th of July that everybody and their mother wants to camp on the South Fork because it's just fantastic water uh, and the weather's just incredible as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so at this point in time, there's no restriction on the public. The guides comprise about 7 or 8% of the total, total overall use, which is about 300,000 visitors a year. So the guide uh, and outfitters only do about 7 or 8% of that 300,000. Wow. Wow. Okay. And so... Let's talk about um, what's happening now, because we were hooked up by a good friend of mine and yours too, Drew Miller, who passed on kind of this this agenda that's that that Idaho Fishing Game is is kind of pursuing, I guess. Um, tell, tell me, tell us what's happening right now. What the what the what they're trying to do or what they want to do. Well, we have to give a little bit of background. They, they yeah. <laughs> The background is that uh, there was a, oh, I'd have to look real quick. The Center for Bio, I mean, I wrote it down. Uh, Center for Biodiversity uh, filed uh, an ESA petition in the late 90s trying to list the Yellowstone cutthroat as a threatened or endangered species. And so they listed over 6,000 miles of water in that petition for potential protection. That petition was shot down in 2001 appeal again in the mid 2000s and then final appeal in 2011. So that ESA petition was just, it's out, it's out. And so the Idaho fishing game along with the interstate compact says, we're all going to manage these waterways for the Yellowstone cutthroat. So they don't get listed. No agency wants to be known as the agency that loses uh, control of that waterway to a federal management program, especially when, Agriculture and hydroelectric water are so such big players in Idaho that I don't know who could survive their career if they lost that. Wow. So they might, if that happened, then uh, in order to protect the fish, they could say you can't put water on the potatoes or on the, on the, on your crops. Right. Right. That that would be, I mean, that was one possible thing that could happen if, if, if they lost control of it. Right. Right. It would be management for fish first. An ag and hydro second. Okay. So, but you also have to go back and look at like the endangered bull trout on, uh, on the salmon river. They don't do much to change irrigating practices. They don't do much about water rights. They just leave it. So those were somewhat hollow threats, but they were severe possibilities to any manager. I mean, nobody wants to know that that water can be taken away from them. Um, and quite frankly, they probably couldn't survive their career if that was to happen. Okay. So the interstate compact came across every Montana, Idaho, and Wyoming uh, formulated management plans around what to do to minimize that threat. And so they started, Idaho realized 
This was their opinion, by the way. Mm -hmm. This is all about biological opinion. Their idea was that the threat, the rainbows are the biggest threat to the cutthroat population in the South Fork. Now we have to kind of drill down on what cutthroats in the South Fork first before I go any further. Okay. So everything above Palisades Dam is a snake or a cutthroat. You fished in Jackson long enough, mm-hmm. you know, everything from Palisades above is a snake or a cutthroat. So Idaho decides to rename the cutthroat below Palisades, the Yellowstone cutthroat. And Dr. Robert Benke in his book, Trout and Salmonas in North America, states that he doesn't believe the spotting patterns because it's a snake or a fine spotted cutthroat mm-hmm. changed after the dam. He believed that the fish below Palisades were always a snake or a fine spotted cutthroat. Okay. Now, this is kind of interesting, too, for people that may not know this. And I think it's probably important to, to, to let people know this, too. In Yellowstone National Park, the Snake River bubbles out of the ground. Then it flows south through Grand Teton National Park, all the way through the Snake River Canyon into Palisades Reservoir with the Grays River and the Salt River entering there as well. The body of water we're talking about, the south fork of the Snake River, is that same water that comes out of Palisades Dam and and goes all the way out to Rexburg, right? And then right, it goes all the way down to Idaho Falls. All right? the way to yeah, all the way to Idaho Falls. You also have the Henry's Fork of the Snake River, and where does the Henry's Fork start? Approximately sixty-two miles below. Palisades Dam. Okay. And so the Henry's Fork, another very, very famous uh, river, is the Snake River. So it's the same river that we're talking about, the Henry's Fork, the South Fork, the Snake proper. All of that originates in Yellowstone National Park. In Yellowstone National Park, there is a fish called the Yellowstone Cutthroat, which is the fish that you're talking about that is potentially endangered. It is endangered. Those same years that we started fishing in, um, in, uh, uh, on the South Fork, 1990, you could go to Fishing Bridge and you could look over and there were a million <laughs> cutthroats there, right? And you could fish the Yellowstone River, right, you know, uh, all the way down through the Hayden Valley. And and you, it was incredible fishing. There were so many fish in there. And you go there, I don't know, the last few years, it's certainly not the same. And a lot of that has to do with the lake trout in the lake, if I'm correct. Correct. And it's interesting that the lake trout is taken its foothold and taken the number of fish that they have um, out of Yellowstone Lake. But U.S. Fish and Wildlife in the early days and their early inception planted those lake trout in Yellowstone Lake. Mm. Okay. So, and so, so now we right, have, so those populations dwindled because of the predation of the, uh, the lake trout. Right. And so the predation of the lake trout basically decimates the Yellowstone river. Certainly the last few times I've been there, it was not even a shadow of its former self. It was, tough to find a fish in there. And I even walked across fishing bridge, just looking like, God, there's gotta be something. in. It. I mean, no, and it's not see a single one, not, not a single one. Right. And I so, think there's a combination of factors. It's just, just not the lake trout, but the lake trout is the majority of those factors. Okay. Well, whatever's going on, the purpose of, right. of that is there, there is a fish called a Yellowstone cutthroat. There is also the cutthroat trout population or the cutthroat trout family is a huge family of trout. There's posters you can get that have, I don't know, how many cutthroats are in the cutthroat family? Do you know? I think 23 with 18 uh, in, in any populations. 
Okay, so a bunch of them, eight, 23 different kinds. Of those kinds, there are one called a Yellowstone cutthroat, and then there is a Snake River Fine Spot cutthroat. Both are in the Yellowstone National Park, correct? Right. One's on one side of the, the divide, one's on the other side. Mm-hmm. So this is one thing that met, that got me really curious in the beginning the snake that flows out of Yellowstone National Park south and then turns into the South Fork and then there's the Henry's Fork, that should have always been Snake River Fine Spot Cutthroat, right? I mean, that would have been their uh, natural, that would have been the natural fish there. Exactly. The Snake River Fine Spotted Cutthroat is indigenous to the Snake River starting in Yellowstone, as you're saying. Okay. So now, why is it that they want to put Yellowstone Cutthroats? In the South Fork, <laughs> that's what I, I, I don't I don't really understand this. Like it's like, uh, it tra- well, can you explain further, that to me? A little further background: the state of Wyoming in the uh, the early seventies, before any genetic testing was ever formalized or advanced the way it is now, realized visually that the Yellowstone cutthroat, having large spots and the Snake River fine spot, are two different in their mind managing manageable subspecies that they manage starting the seventies for non-interbreeding populations. Mm-hmm. Okay. So the state of Wyoming does that. Okay. So that's the snake river fine spotted cutthroat all the way into Palisades. You familiar with the flat Creek hatchery there in, uh, oh, yeah. in Jackson, mm-hmm. the flat Creek hatcheries only ever raised snake river fine spotted cutthroats to propagate into Palisades reservoir because when the dam was built, the dam blocked off five major spawning tributaries for the uh, snake river fine spotted cutthroat. So they realized when they built the dam and completed it in 57, that they were doing some damage to the resource. So they built the flat Creek hatchery to propagate snake river fine spotted cutthroats into that drainage. Okay. And, and I believe they were stocked in the South Fork. I mean, they, they come through the dam every day. They stock up to 2 million a year in Palisades reservoir. Right. There's, it's only logical that, that some would get in there, right? I mean, oh yeah, we've caught we've caught lake trout as far down as Byington and and down even below that. Mm-hmm. Really? So if lake trout make it that far down, the hatchery yeah. fish are definitely coming through that okay. through the dam. So so now is that enough background to kind of bring us up to speed uh, for for what is being proposed now, or do we need to go into further detail? Well, below Palisades. Idaho Fishing Game is calling the Yellowstone cutthroat, calling it a Yellowstone cutthroat. They don't make a differentiation from the upstream entities like U.S. Fish and Wildlife and the state of Wyoming. They say that they're genetically close enough, identical enough, without any discernible genetics to say that they shouldn't be interbreeding and making just one species. Mm-hmm. Okay. Thusly eliminating Yellowstone and thusly eliminating Snake River, they go back and forth. It's like a, a Labrador and a poodle breeding. You're never going to unbreed a Labradoodle. You're always going to have some vestiges of either side. Whether it's genetically detectable or not, that's where life history comes in because a snake or a cutthroat has a superior life history. So when you look at a snake or a cutthroat, they've always survived um, the different hatchery programs into Jackson. There's been rainbow stocked over the years. There's been brown trout stocked over the years. And the snake river cutthroat has been able to outcompete both the rainbows and browns stocked into that snake river in Jackson. <laughs> so it's got a superior life history. 
Whereas the Yellowstone cutthroat, as we know, is a whole different animal. That's the rag of a fish that you catch in the inline. It doesn't really do much. It's great to catch. They're beautiful. They sip dry flies, but they're a whole different animal in that sense, mm-hmm. in my mind. Yeah, I, I believe that. True. Um, okay, so so now here we are today, and what is being proposed? So they started a l- rainbow elimination program back in the uh, the early two thousands, where they tagged. Um, the rainbows and hybrids with a little orange tag by the dorsal fin. And there was a dollar amount on those tags. So you go ahead, you catch the fish. You're supposed to kill the fish, pull the tag and call it in, see if there's any money. There's actually, there was a dollar amount on the tag, hmm. but what ended up happening is the public loves catching the rainbows so much. And the hybrids is that they just pulled the tags, called in for the money and let the fish go. Okay. As a matter of fact, there's a funny little background to that. Um, one of the days, uh, at the end of the day, I was at the covered wagon saloon and the, one of the locals came up and showed me his cooler. It's like, you got to see the fish we got in this cooler. And I'm looking through, there's some really nice brown trout. There were three, three or four. I, you know, it was probably over the limit because <laughs> they were mm-hmm. drinking. And then there was no rainbows. And there were like four or five cutthroat below the brown trout, just buried underneath the bags. And I said, you guys, you know, you, those are illegal fish. They say, Hey, we like the fight of the rainbow so much. We throw them back and we eat the cutthroat. Hmm. Okay. (laughs) So that's, so it's, so fishing game incentivizes the public to do this dirty work to remove these fish. The public says, Hey, we love the fish too much. The rainbows and the hybrids that, we're going to call in the tags and then release the fish. Right. So that program was a bit of a failure. So they moved from that failure to putting pit tags in the nasal cavities of these fish. So now in order to find out if you have any dollar amount, they re-incentivized the program. It was a hundred dollar limit. Then they re-incentivized the program to a thousand dollars. So there were five or $6,000 fish in that whole snake, the South Fork system. And the only way you could get to the money because the pit tags in the nasal cavity, you had to kill the fish, cut off its head, and turn it into fishing game. Hmm. So they upped their ante because the first program failed. So now you got this tag that you have to cut off the head and yada, yada, yada. So when they started that program, Tom, it was really interesting. Their goal was around 20 some odd thousand fish the first year. That first year, they only received about 22 to 2,500 as far as I know. Wow. So that's, that's, that's a 10% of their projections. And their projections were based on um, surveys they've done in the public about how much they want the cutthroat in the system and how much they don't want the rainbows there. Hmm. So you've got two different programs with the same result with the public not participating to the levels that they project. Right. Meanwhile. So fast, if so you go, fast forward. Yeah, go, go ahead. ahead. No, you go ahead. So fast forward, since the public is not participating in the program that Fish and Game wants them to, Fish and Game in 2019 decided to electroshock and remove rainbows and hybrids from the system. Hmm. And so they went ahead. Their goal was around three or 4,000. They ended up removing close to 7,000 fish that year. Wow. Because they were so successful at shocking and removing rainbows and hybrids that they upped their ante and went past their original um, projections. 
Okay. Now so all it, this is going on. Meanwhile, the Henry's Fork is a world-renowned heralded rainbow stream. Correct. It, both in Idaho. So right. 60 miles away, they're trying to kill all the rainbows. Over here, they're raking in the money from all the tourists coming to try to catch the rainbows. <laughs> this is not, I, I mean, I, maybe I've been away for too long, but it's just not making sense, like what's going on here. I don't, I don't understand why well, you've got the You've got the endangered happen? species threat that's off the table. Okay. I, I've talked to Patrick Kennedy, the chief biologist who's doing this rainbow elimination program. He knows of no uh, threats at this point in time or anybody who's working on a listing at all, period, for uh, the Yellowstone cutthroat. I talked to Bryce Oldemeyer at Henry's Fork Foundation. Same results. Hmm. So I also went out. I want to triangulate the whole situation. I want to be honest. I go to the Western Watersheds Council, and I talked to a, a petitioner who um, has written the Big Lost um, Whitefish Petition which is really interesting in its own right, because the big loss disappears in the desert. The whitefish are geographically and genetically isolated uh, population of fish. And his petition was shot down. Hmm. So in his mind, after I let out the parameters of how the, the South Fork has had 3.5 million hatchery fish, the Henry's Fork is connected and you have all these fish coming in from Palisades. He says, there's not a chance the South Fork would ever be listed as endangered or threatened just because of those parameters. Okay. So now that's off the table. The lead biologist for Idaho who's, who's heading up the program says it's off the table. The conservation organization in charge of the Henry's Fork and what's called the South Fork Initiative says the exact same thing. So why are they operating from a position of fear from an old Endangered Species Act um, threat with a compact that's based on that threat? <laughs> you got me. That's why I got you on the podcast. <laughs> I don't know. I want you to tell me. Well, so, I mean, I, I, I just don't understand. Um, I get the, I get, I, I, I do have sympathy and can understand, or maybe empathy is a better word. I can understand like, okay, let's say rainbows got into the Yellowstone river, um, above the falls and they were never supposed to be there. The Yellowstone cutthroat in Yellowstone national park. That's a real treasure. Yeah. Let's get them out of there. And let's restore this right. to a, to, I mean, well, you have that going on in the lake. Why can't, why don't we get the lake trout out of there? And I'm sure people are trying. Uh, it's probably a much more difficult thing now that they are really well established in there. It's probably much more difficult to try to get them out um, than, I don't know. I don't even know how you would do it. It's like trying to get well, rid of coyotes. They're doing, they're doing gill nets and the, they're reducing the population. I mean, it's, it's been a program that's been going on for more than 10 years and they've been uh, very good at it. And so how do they're they getting, how do, they do the gill nets that don't get the, the Yellowstone cutthroats? I'm sure the cutthroats get in there, but the net is of a certain size. Oh, okay. So fish would, I mean, of course, lake trout are much bigger than yeah. Yellowstone cutthroats and they're, you want the smaller, but I, I believe that, and it's also at different depths. Mm. Lake trout occupy different depths. Right. They come up at night in the shallower water or low light conditions, and then they go down. So you don't really have as much of a crossover. So you're targeting in a different body of water do you in think, that sense. So do you, you think that that's going to recover? Like with those efforts and whatever other efforts and as much as you know about this area, do you think that we're going to see the Yellowstone River and Yellowstone Lake uh, recover to the 
to where it once was like in the eighties and nineties? You know, where it once was is, is such a, is it's a shot in the dark. You know, we only know what we experienced. Mm -hmm. Will it return to what we experienced? It's hard to say with the right management tools in place, it has the chance, but ultimately it's up to mother nature and what falls from the sky. Mm, Yeah. And, and making sure that we have enough snow and rain to, for the, for the water is what you're saying, right? To make sure that there's exactly. enough flow and, and all of that is, is taken care of. So um, the tributaries don't warm up too much. I mean, is there, is there geothermal activity taking place in Yellowstone that is warming up the tributaries to Yellowstone Lake and causing issues? I'm not sure, but that could certainly play into that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, that's a, that's when you see the, the, uh, the numbers plummet like they did, it, it, I mean, it could be something like that. Like certainly all of a sudden, I think the, the matrix is so the matrix is so big that we're really not in control of it. Right. Okay. We can only do the best to, to leave the best habitat and conditions we can. All right. So, so now um, let's go back to the South Fork. They, there is a, the proposal is that they electroshock more fish than what they've already done. So, right. So, 2019, close to 7,000 fish. COVID comes, they can't shock because of COVID. It's, it's, which is really ironic. It's deemed a non-essential activity <laughs> inside of fish and game. So they can't shock during that COVID period. And then the key word is non-essential activity. You, you think if they're really trying to protect something that it would be an essential activity. Right. So they stepped up their efforts last fall. Uh, they didn't bring it to the public because they admitted that there's been, there's a stronger tie to public opposition to what they're doing. So they went ahead and shocked. I don't know how many they brought out, but they brought out a, a fair number without telling us. Mm-hmm. And that was after they did their population survey. So if you look for the last few years, the rainbow and cutthroats are all going up like this. Their theory is that the rainbows will displace these cutthroats. And so you see this rise in both populations. And that's interesting because we've had of four or five consecutive great water years, which is what it takes for both populations to go up. And if the rainbow was going to displace the cutthroat, increasing rainbow numbers would be plummeting cutthroat numbers. Right. So the numbers that you see, if anybody does any research or looks into the 2020 numbers, they're going to see a nice healthy amount of rainbows. But you have to take in mind that population survey was done before they electroshocked and remove more. Hmm. So their survey says the rainbows are still in the crease, increased even after our efforts in uh, 2019. So they're upping their total to 12,000. And that's 12,000 rainbows and hybrids out of the South Fork electroshocked and removed and put into different entities. I mean, that's a considerable number to ramp that up. It's unfathomable to me that they haven't done an economic impact statement. Well, that's the next thing, I, obviously, that, that I want to talk about. But go ahead. The, has anyone asked them about that? It's just something I came up with recently. You know, I, I'm a guide. I like the fish. I love the fish. I love the river. I don't have a background in conservation. I have a freshwater biology background. I studied it for two years at University of Colorado. But I don't have the conservation avenues. So I'm learning as I go. And oh. so I know that it, uh, an Indian economic impact statement is, is definitely worthy at this point in time. They need to halt their efforts because 12,000 is just a, <clears throat> it's a target goal. If they reach that goal early in their dates, 
they're going to continue shocking and removing until their end dates. So it's conceivable they could go well past 12,000, 13, 14, who knows where it would stop. Wow. So how many days a year do you figure you fish the South Fork? Oh, 150, 160. I do probably 140, uh, per, per, uh, 140 uh, professionally. And then I'm on that water as much as I can uh, throughout the whole season. I'm on the water 12 months a year. And then you're, you're also, um, you know, you have a really good reputation. You have a lot of great clients. Um, you've won the one fly how many times as the guide? As a guide, I've won it five times. Five times. Has anybody else won it five times? There's a four-time winner right on my heels. Who's that? <laughs> uh, Mike Bean. Okay. So five times to win the, the one fly. That's, that's really, that's, that's outstanding. I mean, that is really something. Uh, you're not going to do that. You're not going to win it once or twice without really knowing the water. So <clears throat> what, when you see... There was a, uh, an elect, the first electroshock was, uh, oh, and by the way, congratulations on five times winning the one fly. I know that's a very, very difficult <laughs> I thing. Appreciate to do. That. I appreciate that. that. Absolutely. I, I can, I can, I can appreciate what kind of work and, and dedication went into that. Um, so when they do the first electroshocking, are you as, as a guy that knows this water, you're on it that much. Are you seeing, what kind of difference did you see when they took 3000 out or what was the first number that you said that they took out? Their target was about 3,3500. They, they upped it to close to 7,000. Okay. So they concentrated on the upper stretch. Um, they went down a little bit further into the canyon, but the upper stretch got hammered. They, all of us dreaded going to the upper stretch. Hmm. You know, you, you talk to the shuttle people, they say people came up, there were no fish to catch. They decided to go somewhere else. It was really, it was difficult. Wow. Because those rainbows have a stronghold closer to Palisades than they do further down. Mm -hmm. uh, and when they wiped out that many fish, it was difficult. And I have to, I have to preface that because fish and game, when they electroshock, when anybody electroshocks, they go to where the populations are. They don't go out to these long runs that are virtual deserts. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> Excuse me. They electroshock where we fish, where you and I want to cast that dry fly into that two, three feet of water, mm -hmm. into that riffle, into the holding water down below it, that real good holding water, they hammer that. They hammer the water where we fish, where we can access, because the electroshocking only goes a certain depth. You can only turn up so much electricity before you start causing harm, breaking fish's backs, intermuscular hemorrhaging, all that kind of stuff, depending on how much electricity is used. So they go to where we catch, because they want to be successful. Right. And so we noticed a dramatic lack of fish um, at that year. Now, did you catch now, more cutthroats that? I mean, is it, were the cutthroats, did they come back into the riffles? Were there more of them or the same no. number or less fish altogether or what? I think there were less fish altogether. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's, depending on who you talk to, electrofishing has a mortality rate of 1.7% all the way up to 12%. And, and that's on a short term, the 30 day observation. But you also, if you're overzealous, you can come in and shock and then you're going to cause intramuscular hemorrhaging. You're going to be breaking the vertebrae. If they get it, if you shock adequately, the fish comes up and it doesn't twitch. If they get a twitch response, so the fish does this. They're having seizures mm -hmm. and those seizures cause intermuscular hemorrhaging and, and can break their backs. I'm sure you've caught fish before that have that, 
the crooked back. Sure. Yeah. That's it. That's, that's either that. Well, it's, that's not, it's, it's either that or that's whirling disease because mm. whirling disease has been in the South Fork since the fifties. Right. Yeah. And so, um, if they, if they shock them and they see five rainbows come up and three cutthroats, they're just going to net up the rainbows and let the cutthroats just go downstream. Exactly. And then hopefully they're going to write themselves and, and find their way back to that same riffle. There's probably, hopefully they're not being overzealous trying to get the rainbows and, and, uh, they don't turn up the juice. Mm. Yeah. And now that seems, uh, that seems this opens up another Pandora's box on the electroshocking. You ready for this one, Tom? Okay. I'm listening. I'm starting to do research on repetitive electroshocking over relatively short periods of time. They're talking about doing their rainbow eradication uh, four days a week for five weeks. They're going to be repeating stretches that river um, almost every time. Hmm. And you go and you start shocking these fish repeatedly. I can't find the evidence, but people always tell me, the biologist I've been in touch with says, it's definitely not good when you're shocking them weekly. Well, I mean, you can go into it's a cumulative effect. You can go into one of those places that you fish all the time, one little side channel there or whatever. Yeah, every time you go back in there, there's a fish that that's that's sipping dry flies under a tree. You catch it almost every time you go by, you release it, and then that fish gets harder and harder to catch until it just doesn't live there anymore. It's like this right. is not a safe place. If you're getting shocked four days a week, I don't think they're going to come back there. They're going to seek other places, deeper water, uh, against that's, the that's, bank, something else, uh, anywhere else, right? <laughs> it well, seems that's, like that's it. been documented in repeated electroshock. And that's one of the few little things I've been able to pull out is that fish will start to sense that electricity and they start to move away from it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it makes it more and more difficult as you go on. Now there's another side to that is they, they want to shock the rainbows on the reds and they want to remove the rainbows, the, the reproducing rainbows. But you also, since there's a high level of hybridization by observation of rainbows and cutthroats, you're also shocking those cutties on those reds. Now that's not going to do a lot of good to an egg laying female that's full of eggs. Right. So another little bit of nugget that I pulled out in the last couple of days is that electroshocking um, can, and I've got to choose the right language it can destroy embryos. Mm, okay. It can inhibit their development. It can delay their development. It does all sorts of different things. There's just not one thing that it does, depending on the stages that the embryonic stages they're going through. But it definitely hurts those eggs. Okay. And so if they use enough electricity on those reds, they're hurting future generations of fish because you can't you can't discriminate between electroshocking a cutthroat or a rainbow. You're shocking both. Yeah. Meanwhile, we're the, not even mentioning the, same the brown trout. We're not even mentioning it. They're getting shocked too. Right. I mean, they're getting shocked as well. Yeah. But why is it? Why is it that we, you know, all this discussion is rainbow and brown, rainbow and and cutthroat, but no mention of the brown trout. Well, that's that's kind of interesting. There's a little bit of history on that. Um, Seven or eight years ago, there was a Spring Creek Symposium held at uh, Idaho State University. And this was for people in fisheries, also Spring Creek managers. A good friend of mine was the streamkeeper for uh, birdies at Silver Creek. He attended the symposium. He came back and he called me from his car after one of the seminars and said, fish and game would go after the brown trout. But the outcry of public opinion on the South Fork 
would be deafening and they're choosing not to do that. Hmm. So fast forward a couple of years later, Fish and Game obviously thinks that these brown trout are eating all these juvenile cutthroats. That's why they went ahead and tried to eradicate them or reduce their numbers by opening up the dam in the late 80s. Mm -hmm. They do a stomach content survey spring and fall. And if I remember the numbers correctly, just take a stab at it, Tom. How many of the the 50 in the spring and 50 in the fall, they did a a stomach content survey. How many of those fish out of the 100 had uh, juvenile cutthroats in their bellies? I don't know, maybe five. I think it was three or four. Wow. And so what was the primary food source? Uh, caddis. Caddis? Oh, really? <laughs> really? Caddis. They're just eating caddis yeah, all the time? I would have thought maybe baby whitefish or something like, or I don't no, know, something they had that would be easier to catch. they had whitefish in their stomachs. Yeah. Really? No, they, they had hardly any whitefish in their stomachs. Huh. It wasn't like they had, you know, we always think that, that brown trout are, are meat eaters. Right. And I'm sure after a certain size that they do have a propensity to eat meat. But like out here on Pyramid Lake, right out the window here, you can catch a 20-pound Pyramid Lake cutthroat on a size 16 midge. Mm-hmm. The phrase is, elephants eat peanuts. That's right. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Same thing with you the You know that from fish. the tarpon world. Yeah. yeah. I mean, they, they'll just gar- gorge themselves on shrimp all night long. You know, they, 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 they eat little things, tons of them. Exactly. And so they were going to go after the brown trout. They tried. I mean, that's why they opened up the raceway. They said in that symposium they want to do that. But now their their stomach content survey says, hey, it's a non-issue. Hmm. All right. So this is what I'm trying to get my head around. If if you went over to the Henry's Fork and you walked out onto the Harriman Ranch and you caught one of those 24-inch rainbows and you grabbed it by the gills and started walking out across the 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 down the road with it, <laughs> you would be it would Probably 10 people would jump you, beat the crap out right. of you. You'd go to jail. And <laughs> that, and, and th- I don't understand how that, it's such a, such a uh, protected thing there, but just a little ways over, it's, they're, they're wanting to kill them all. I, I just, I really can't get my head wrapped around that. And I understand everything that you've said. I mean, and, and I, I kind of understand where they're, where they're going with it, but it's, I, it just doesn't seem to add up. That just doesn't seem to add up that the rainbow is such a, such a, 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 um, trophy fish in, in one body of water. And then in another, another body of water, they want to get rid of it. Right. So you go back to stocking records back on the Henry's fork. There's uh, there's what's called milk can stocking mm-hmm. trains came through. They had milk cans full of rainbows. They popped them in the Henry's Fork. So that's that's been the fabric of that river forever. That started displacing the native cutthroat in that river, which, if I understand correctly, was a Yellowstone cutthroat or some derivation of that. Um, so in the South Fork, you have the same kind of thing. You've got this milk can stocking that's happened. You've had stocking by fish and game, 69 to 81, 3.5 million cutthroat, and there's hundreds of thousands of rainbows they stocked in there. They've been the fabric of that river for as long as they stocked them in the Henry's Fork, mm-hmm. they've been coming through that system. They're just gaining a little bit more of a foothold. But if they're getting so much of a foothold, how come both populations are going up and one's not going down if, yeah. if they're going to be pushing them out? Yeah. But even then, I mean, I don't know. Like, you're, there would be a debate in my mind of 
was there ever really was the native fish there ever a real Yellowstone cutthroat, or is that just what has it has been called over this time? Because it seems like logic would say that it's a Snake River fine spot cutthroat. And if well, they it, were absolutely that's what Dr. Robert Benke says. He says right. he doubts that spotting patterns change at Palisades. So so you someone, know, this is this is just someone saying that the Yellowstone cutthroat would be better than the rainbows. That's just someone's opinion. It's, it's somebody's opinion, correct. Right. Or maybe mo- maybe a lot of people's opinion. Maybe it's based on a whole bunch of things that we haven't even talked about. I'll give them the, I'll give them the 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 benefit of the doubt there, whatever. But what's going to happen is if that happens and they do this shocking study, what you were alluding to earlier, which needs to be done is what would the economic impact of that be? on Swan Valley, Victor Driggs, Jackson, and all of the areas that the South Fork feeds. I mean, you said that there were 300,000 anglers that fished the, the South Fork. Is that correct? Uh, uh, 300,000 users. 300,000 users. Okay, and so. most people wet a line at one point in time, whether they're just riding on a raft with a cold beer or they're fishing hard. Right. Well, that's fuel, food, flies, uh, beer, ice, sandwiches, groceries, camping supplies, fishing supplies, licenses. Right. I mean, it's real That's easy just to number. go to Montana or just to go to right. Wyoming. If, if your favorite river doesn't fish well anymore, you just go somewhere else. I mean, that, that happens. And exactly. Is no one... I mean, I'm sure that the guides are are thinking about that, but is 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 that at all um, some sort of a of a of a, a point of discussion in any of this, or is has the public even been allowed to to state their opinion of what would happen if they continued shocking? No, they. I also have to I have to backtrack on that again. This is not a one off. This twelve thousand number is not a one off. They're going to do shocking again next year because their goal is to keep the rainbow population under 10% of the overall population. Okay. So they're going to do 12,000 now, which is between 20 and 30% of the rainbows that they calculate are in that river. Next year, they're going to kick it up again. They're going to kick it up again. They're going to kick it up again until all of a sudden you're down below 10% on the rainbows. So this is going to be an ongoing process that is never going to be able to stop. There's never going to be a halt to this program in my mind a lot of people's opinions, there's never going to be a halt to it because they have to keep that number below a 10%. But who, and that's says, an important, who says that they have to keep the number between below 10%? That's, that's part of opinion, the, right? That's a, that's part of a biological opinion and an operating um, compact interstate operating compact from the ESA okay. uh, petition back in the nineties. Okay. So that 10% is a really critical number. It did, they didn't pick that out of the sky. So if you go to core populations, worthy of protections and resurrections, a core population that has no hatchery intrusion, no agricultural demands, no intrusion from rainbows or non, uh, non-native, which are now wild in the South Fork, that's a, part, that's a population that you throw all your efforts to for resurrection and restoration. Then you have a core population that goes up to 10% that is still worthy of restoration. Then you go past 10%, you go up to about 25%. That's a population that you can look at for restorative efforts. But anything above 25% is no longer 
to be managed for a resurrected population or worthier protections. The South Fork, in my opinion, is well over that 25% with the 3.5 million hatchery fish. With the continued intrusion of the fish from Palisades and from coming up from the Henry's Fork. If you, if you picture this population of trout in the middle of the South Fork right there below Palisades mm-hmm. is a bubble. Mm-hmm. Every time a fish comes from Palisades Dam, that bubble bursts because those genetics are hatchery genetics. There's no diversity in those genetics. They're hatchery genetics. They're, they're just not the same. They're inferior. Every time a rainbow comes up from the Henry's Fork, that bubble bursts. Every time a fish goes down the irrigation canals and washes out of the system, that bubble burst. So what you have a you have a, a closed system. Hmm. You've got five major irrigating canals that pull out tons of fish, thousands and thousands of fish a year. And then you have this hatchery coming in from Palisades. Daily, those fish wash through the dam. Mm-hmm. This bubble's bursting all the time. So why not manage it for sportsmen? Why not? My, my position is take the middle ground. Let's manage the five major spawning tributaries to the South Fork with every effort we have. All the dollars, all the resource, all the manpower. Let's get those fish established, reestablished in those spawning tributaries because they've left several of those because of agricultural demands. They go out of irrigating canals. One has a rainy creek has a thermal barrier that you see every year because the upstream user is allowed to flood irrigate out of Rainy Creek. There might be an inch of water going through Rainy Creek uh, three miles up from the, uh, from the river. Mm. I've taken water temperatures on Rainy Creek at the 4th of July at 72 degrees. And you know full well that at 72 degrees, that's lethal for trout. Imagine those fish that have spawned in upper Rainy Creek. They can't come through that. They're not going to come through that. And they get stuck up in the upper river. So let's throw all our resources at that and get those cutthroats established with a superior life history in those tributaries. Let's use egg boxes so they have a, a hit life history that's imprinted on that creek. You have, to, the, you have to make the tough decision. You've got to get those water rights. You've got to get the in-stream flows to make that work. So and I'm for the middle ground. Yeah. Is there anything else? Let's get else those tributaries established. Uh, any any other anything else that you would think would need to happen? Any other limits? Any other any other thing that you would institute there? Well, it's there's been a reversal of putting the onus on the public on removing these fish. The public has enjoyed the onus of removing the fish because it's their satisfaction. Mm-hmm. It's what they want to do. But all of a sudden, what they want to do is not meeting fishing games goals. So now they're taking it out of the public's hands. It's still in the public's hands, but they're not meeting the numbers that fishing game needs. So fishing game is now going to electroshocking to remove these fish out of the system. I say keep it in the public's hands. Keep the incentive programs the way they are. And put a six pure rainbow limit on the fishery and let the public decide. Let's not let some bureaucrats sitting in an office decide what's better best for us as the angling public. And I'm, and I'm talking the angling public around the world that celebrates the great diversity of that river. Those acrobatic rainbows, those streamer tugging browns, those dry fly sipping cutthroats, they're all there. They're all going up. The populations are going up. We've had great water years. It's successful. Why not manage it for sportsmen? So is there any way, um, like something that Drew passed over to me was, um, it, it, was it a petition? Is what what is circulating right now? Is there a way for anyone that's interested in this that that loves the South Fork that wants to express their opinion? Is there a way for them to do that? 
I started a petition on change.org, um, stop Idaho fishing game from electroshocking South Fork uh, uh, rainbows and removing them. I really appreciate anybody who reads the position statement along with that petition. If they agree, go ahead and sign it. There are plenty of people who disagree. It's not the majority. Again, 300,000 people use ever less than 1% actually participate in the incentive programs. Mm -hmm. So the public has voted. It's a deafening vote of no, we don't want this river to change. We enjoy that diversity. We enjoy what it has to offer. So if you agree, that's fine. I, I really appreciate your, your assistance and help because fishing game needs to listen to us as the angling public, the worldwide angling public. This, it's a gem for the world. Yeah. Well, I think that, I think that conversations like this are really super important because first of all, it's important for the public to know what's going on. Secondly, it's important for them to understand what's going on from a couple of different perspectives. I'd like to have somebody from the Idaho Fishing Game on to to let's hear exactly what why they they believe so strongly that this is what they should do. Obviously, they have some science to to tell them that this is the way to go. I I guess or it's job protection or I don't know what it is, but it's only fair to give someone else the opportunity to to exactly. express their opinion. And then, you know, but it's conversations like this that allow for that to happen and allow for people to hear one side or the other and make their decision on what what they think. Now, is the public's opinion does does it have any um um would it make a difference if there was big public outcry that this should not happen? It can I mean, is it like I, I was told by a fishing game official that it doesn't matter how many signatures that we get on change.org. Mm -hmm. They're not going to listen to it. Hmm. That's that's frustrating. Yeah, because there, there are two sides to every story. The pendulum has to swing both directions before it centers in the middle, sets in the middle. I'm trying to take that middle ground approach. Yeah. The pendulum swinging both ways. There are advocates on both sides. I'm advocating for a middle ground approach. I'm not talking about eliminating cutthroat. I'm talking about enhancing cutthroat habitat right. to the point that we can get them reestablished in those tributaries mm -hmm. and use that as a superior life history. Yeah. Well, in Florida, over that, that takes, uh, that takes a great deal of, of work to get water rights. Right. I mean, that's, that, and and that's difficult. That's that doesn't happen overnight and, and none of the, none of the uh, farmers want to give them up and it would, you got to raise a bunch of money to, to get that to happen. If it could even happen at all, I would imagine you could offer right. some incentives or whatever to, to allow, um, to make sure that the water's flowing, there's enough water and it's the right temperature and all that through the, maybe there's some incentives that you could offer someone or uh, somebody could, but, um, all I know is that in the last couple of years, you know, Florida has, has had a lot of water problems associated with, uh, the Everglades and, and, um, it was a hard thing to get many people to understand what the problem was. And it was a hard thing to get um, anyone to, to kind of really get behind it until it was put into an economic um, example for not just the anglers who understand what's going on, but for the bird watchers and for the real estate agents and for the restaurant owners and for the hotel owners and for the Uber drivers and for the name it. 
whatever it is, when people come to, whether it's Jackson or Driggs or Victor or Swan Valley or Idaho Falls or anywhere, wherever they're going to, and and the South Fork is on the agenda of something that they're going to do in that week, there is a tremendous amount of money being put into all of those economies. When you can get people's attention about the, the economic impact of if this happens, your house isn't going to be worth as much money on the South Fork or your restaurant isn't going to get as many patrons over the summer. All of a sudden, people's that got people's attention in Florida big time. And then they then mm-hmm. there were a lot of conversations like this and a lot of people spending a lot of time really educating the public on exactly what the water situation was and that there was actually something that we could do about it together. Like uh, all, everybody, right. everybody's voice did make a difference in, in, in a lot of that. And I would imagine that same thing could happen here if you're if you get the um, the attention of maybe your senator or your congressman or somebody like that that is like wait hold on we're going to be losing how many tourists a year if this river if the quality of this fishing goes goes down I would think that your senator and your congressman would want to would want to know that and maybe they're not putting two and two together to understand that oh this might not be the best idea. Well, the problem is right now, those entities that are uh, being affected or will be affected down the road by the continued shocking and removal of fish without any replacement plan, they're fractured. Hmm. There's, no one, there's no one source for them to go to. There's no chamber of commerce. There's none of that going on. So I'm trying to spearhead this and put into people's minds, we need to do an economic impact statement before they start shocking. Because they're going to up their levels, they're going to continue shocking, removing them down to 10% without any replacement plan on uh, the loss of fish. Mm-hmm. And the number one, what's the number one angular satisfaction? Catching fish. Bent rod. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and if, you're, if you're, you're down to half the amount of success, oh, no, it, I do mean- people come? Listen, they go elsewhere. There's there's lots of rivers that have fish in it. There, you know, the South Fork is a wonderful, beautiful river, and people will be loyal to it for a while. But then, you know, it's just like what happened in Homosassa, Florida. That used to be the place where anglers descended to catch tarpon, and then the tarpon right. just stopped showing up there. And guess what happened? The anglers stopped showing up there, and Homosassa doesn't. It's not known as a place. For tarpon fishing anymore. Something happened to the tarpon, and then something happened to the tarpon anglers. A few super hardcores still go, hoping that they'll see a glimpse of what it once was. But that'll happen anywhere. It'll happen. I mean, it happened to Yellowstone River. How many people used to do a trip to Yellowstone National Park every single year so they could fish Buffalo Ford? And then, you know what? Oh, it's still packed. (laughs) Yeah, but I mean, I'm sure some of the people are just like, man, we just got to go somewhere. I guess we're going to the Henry's Fork this year. like, Or or we're going, you know, to Montana. We're going to go to Chile or Patagonia. We're going to do something else because... We're saving our dollars for another venue. Yeah, or maybe take up mountain biking or I don't know what they do, but they, you know. See, I want to... I also want to bring up one of the charms of the South Fork. It's, it's the diversity. And Tom, we all know that a rainbow feeds differently than a, a, a cutthroat. Mm-hmm. Cutthroat feeds differently than a rainbow. Brown trout feeds differently. So all those different techniques that you use to catch those fish come into play. That's become the fabric of the South Fork is that diversity. 
you've got a streamer rod. I've got my dry and drop rod. I've got my dry rod. I've got, I have to have three rods Mm -hmm. for somebody to to fully cover all those bases, but they, people want to learn and they love that diversity. Let's throw streamers for a couple hours. Let's see what happens. Let's go for a dry and a dropper. Let's go for the sip and cutthroats. Let's do all these different techniques. Let's try to Euro. Let's see what's going on with Euro. Can we catch some white fish? They love that diversity Mm -hmm. of technique. It's not just, you know, when you and I were there in the 90s when we started, hey, a little dry fly on the riffles, on the bank, you know, that's, this is a multifaceted, multi-technique fishery and people have, I love that. And that's the fabric of the fishery. People come to expect that now. Yeah. Well, um, so what would you suggest? Like if, if people are, are kind of concerned about this, sign the petition and then what? Is, is there a place, do you have future plans on, on what will be happening? Are there some meetings or events that we should know about? Or I, I'm a one-legged man in a masking contest. <laughs> Well, what about so the guides? I, like, are the guides kind of understanding what's going on here and, and, and maybe thinking about organizing? Is it, are they more organized than, than we've discussed here? What's going on there? Can I just say punitive? <laughs> People are afraid of, of some sort of backlash. Yeah. The majority of the guides are on board. There are a few who really enjoy the sipping cutthroat like we experienced in the 90s. Mm-hmm. Again, I'm going to call that the hatchery hangover. Mm-hmm. They they want it back to that level. Yeah. Because they like well, the dry fly. I can understand they, they, that. You know, I mean, I can understand that. I would have, you know, people that would come from the Green River or they would come from all these different places. That's how I learned all about all the different rivers. I'd ask right? my clients, like, where did you, where were you just before this? Oh, I was on the Big Hole or I was on the Madison or I was on this. And oh, how did they fish up there? And then they would come to the South Fork and they would, we would fish dry flies all day long. And they would say, man, right. I just love this. I love this so much. And it was great. But there's nothing like diversity um, because, you know, some days it's not as good as other days, but I don't know. You can just and diversity switch up. of techniques, right? You can switch up and you can try different things. That's amazing. Um, I don't know. I, it's just, you hate to see like something that is really good. Um, be purposefully, um, kind of beaten up a little bit, like taken out of take, take the rainbows out for, for whatever reason, the quality of the fishing for, for some people, if that's what you like, then the quality of the fishing goes down. Other people may have a different agenda and saying, no, every rainbow that gets go that, that is out is one more cutthroat coming in. But from what you're saying that, that, that the evidence doesn't seem to, to show that. Yeah. Reproductive maximum minimums are not sent by the presence of a rainbow. Mm-hmm. We're seeing a rise in both because we've had consecutive great water years yeah. and everybody benefits from that. Mm-hmm. And a lot of those fish have stopped spawning the tributaries and they spawn in the main river now. So that that's only going to help both causes, but it also helps the overlap because the tributaries have um, fish dam fish weirs uh, to sort rainbows from cutthroats. Hmm. So those rainbows don't necessarily, they can't get past a certain point to go spawn in these uh, in three of the tribute for the tributaries. Back in the nineties, late nineties, they put to, uh, forth a great deal of effort to put up uh, fish sorting weirs on Palisades Creek. Rainy Creek and Burns Creek. Yeah, but how does it tell the difference between a rainbow and a cutthroat? What what is the mechanism there? And the water can flow through uh, a gate that the fish cannot go past. So those the the strong will of the spawning fish brings them up to that point where they stop. Yeah, 
And on a daily basis during the, the peak spawning period, somebody goes in and sorts those fish out. Oh, somebody and goes allows, in and sorts them out. I see. Right. I thought, the, damn, that's the a smart contraption. Like, <laughs> <laughs> it'll let a rainbow or a cutthroat through, but not a rainbow. Damn, that's just going to have to get that technology in some other places. Yeah, I didn't think there was anything that I, I certainly hadn't heard of that before. So I'm, I'm glad to know that somebody's sorting them, I guess, because that didn't make any sense. But I'll tell you what, I'll put the, uh, I'll put the, the, the change.org link into the, into the notes and then people can go in there and um, also put your, um, you know, the email that you sent me with your position. I'll put that into the, uh, into the notes here. And so you, people can go and read those things. And then, you know, I would, I would think that if uh, I don't know what the next step would be, I guess, write your Congressman, um, especially. I'm just creating, a, I'm creating awareness. And, I want, I want people to make up their minds based on, Two different opinions. Right. Because it comes down, this is a biological opinion. Yeah. On both sides. Idaho Fish and Game admits it's a biological opinion. This is my biological opinion. Yeah. And your economic opinion. I mean, don't right. forget about and that. That's super important. And it's not just about us as guides and about the resources around. It's not about the South Fork Lodge. It's not about world cast anglers. It's not about the bar in Swan Valley. Uh, it's not about the Rainy Creek store. Or the this square is scoop a of national- ice cream. <laughs> triple decker all day long you if you ever fish the south fork you have to go get a square scoop of ice cream that's one of the greatest pleasures in the world i don't know if they still have it but they did have a square scoop of ice cream they, they still do i stopped there every day that's where i got 20 pounds <laughs> i get a huckleberry milkshake on the way there and a square scoop on the way mm-hmm. home that tends to put that's, a little weight on you that's breakfast and dinner <laughs> so this right. is a, this is a national treasure it's it's a world-renowned fishery Recreational integrity is one of our greatest resources we have as a society. And we want to be able to maintain that recreational integrity on the South Fork. They've done a great job of it over in Jackson. We need to do a great job of it on the South Fork. People come from across the globe, across the states to fish the South Fork. If that integrity is diminished and that sandwich satisfaction rate goes down, we lose that integrity. And we lose that resource in that sense because that, that's what we all need to regenerate. We need that great experience after our day jobs. Well, not me, not you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we need that regenerative uh, medicine. That's, that's the river and her experience. Listen, me and you need that regenerative experience more than anybody. That's, that's the lifeblood, whether it's the ocean <laughs> or the river or it's something we got to have it. It's and, mine's right out the window here. Yeah. At Lake. It's I know right I can now. see you twitching. You're about ready to go. And you've been tying, I keep swatting been at midges. Tying flies, <laughs> midges uh, under the steering wheel this whole time. Yeah. Well, Ed, I appreciate your, your time and uh, kind of educating us on this, on this uh, situation out there. And I'd love to have you on again. If, um, if anything develops or if, if there's something else, going on that anybody needs to know about because the South Fork is, it's just such a special river and it's such a special river to me that, um, you know, I want to know what's going on. And, and honestly, I don't know where exactly where I stand on, on, on this right now. I mean, I love diversity. I love cutthroats. I love rainbows. I love brown trout. I love fishing like and camping on the South Fork. It's all, all of it is great. And, and just like everybody else, I mean, I guess just educate yourself on as much as you possibly can and then make your, make your opinion um, accordingly. It's a middle ground approach. Let's really protect those tributaries with all the manpower, all the money that we can get that life history imprinted on those fish. That's a superior life history. It's going to benefit the river and everyone involved. Yeah, I got you. 
All right, man. Well, uh, go out there to Pyramid Lake and catch <laughs> catch a big one. I hope you get a 20-pounder. I really do. All righty. Okay, Ed, thank you so much for your time. And uh, again, I'll put all this in the notes. And if anybody wants to get in touch with you, how would they do it? Uh, they can uh, get in touch with me at uh, cast one again at AOL.com. Cast one again? C-A-S-T-O-N-E? Uh, the numeral one. Okay. Again, at AOL.com. Man, you are as old school as me because I am permitfly4 <laughs> at AOL.com, and there are not nice. a lot of those left around. But I bet you're like me that that, that email address, I have four or five email addresses, but that one, I have never missed an email. Like, you can say whatever you want to about <laughs> AOL, but they're good at email. They are exactly. good at email. Uh, my wife has a has an AOL account too, so there's at least three of us that still have one. <laughs> still. <laughs> All right, Ed. Nice to talk to you, and uh, go have a great, great afternoon on uh, Pyramid Lake. All right, let's go with a line sometime. I'd love to. I'd love to. All right, see you. Appreciate it. Bye.